Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. I just spoke with Barack Kushner about his really fascinating new book, Men to Devils, Devils to Men, Japanese War Crimes and Chinese Justice. This came out with Harvard University Press in 2015, and it's a really astounding book and a really important contribution to many different kinds of literatures and on many different levels. So first off, it manages simultaneously to be a Japanese history book and a Chinese history book. It's a book that very seamlessly weaves together the narratives of modern Japan and modern China into a story that's very, very transnational. So what it does is it looks at the trying and the prosecution and the conceptualizing of war crimes and war criminals in the aftermath of Japan's defeat in 1945. And it reconsiders history in a number of important ways. On the one hand, and you'll hear Barack talking about this at the very beginning of our conversation, it's reframing Japan not as a defeated country, but as a decolonizing empire. And taking that imperial lens um, and looking through that imperial lens to understand what's happening really changes the story in important ways. At the same time, it's also importantly kind of reframing how we understand international law and the concept of law in general in East Asia um, in the mid-20th century. And it shows, I think, very convincingly that a kind of shifting and transforming notion of law, legality, international law is really formative in not just determining what's happening in the context of war crimes, but also how the reverberations of those discussions are really shaping relations in China, relations beyond China, really an important um, set of developments in world history more generally, well into the 21st century. So I'll leave you to the interview. It's an extensive interview, but just to say that there's a lot going on here um, in the book that is really a very fine-grained analysis of particular documents, individual archives, um, individual stories that we just barely scratched the surface of in the context of the conversation. So listen for Barack's, I think, really expert and very articulate conversation about the broader themes and the broader events um, and their significance that are happening here, and then turn to the book for some really, really fine-grained analysis of some fascinating historical documents and historical figures. Thank you, as ever, for listening, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Barack Kushner about his new book, Men to Devils, Devils to Men. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, Barack. It's nice to have you back again, as always, and I'm really looking forward to talking about the book. Thank you. So since we've had a chance in the past to talk a little bit about um, how you came to the field, and and on the um, website we'll link to that so that listeners can get a sense of that and listening to the ramen book, right, that we previously talked about. A couple years ago, yes. Exactly, a couple years ago. Um, Let's get right to the main event and talk about the book and how you came to this project. So the introduction to the book opens on the announcement of Japan's defeat on August 15th, 1945. There are a lot of reactions to this. One comedian tries and fails to kill himself by drinking five bottles of vodka. Five bottles of vodka. Um, It took me a while to even conceptualize how that was physically possible. Mm. But in any case, so the book moves on from this announcement of Japan's defeat to consider what happened in the wake of Japan's surrender, looking very closely at diplomatic efforts, military efforts, legal efforts to bring um, what you call here Japanese imperial behavior to justice. So it focuses on the aftermath of the Japanese war crimes and asks a number of important questions. You lay out two of them right at the beginning of the book, and I'm going to largely use your words here. How did the Chinese legally deal with Japanese war crimes um, is one of the first questions. And who the Chinese are is actually, you know, really kind of a complex question here that the book really beautifully 
um, lays out and explores. And then also, and also in your words, what were the Japanese responses and how did these processes shape early Cold War Sino-Japanese relations? Okay, so that's the foundation, that's the basics, and we'll get into all the details in the course of the hour, but can you tell us a little bit about how you came to this project? What brought you not only to work on this subject, but also to, I mean, do so much work? Uh, it's, it's just, it's an incredibly expansive, amazingly ambitious project, and to decide on this particular shape for the book itself. Thanks. And listening to your uh, introduction about it, it doesn't sound as bad as I thought it was when I finally finished it. So I'm excited to reread it. Uh, Why this book and and why uh, the focus first? For me, it came from trying to push the boundaries of Japanese history a bit wider to look beyond the contours of Japan's four main islands and look at how Japan was formed and reformed and shaped by its imperial experience. I think that empire had, has or had been lost for quite a while within discourses about modern Japanese history, and it tended to be looked at from a dominant American scheme. Uh, and perhaps, perhaps, perhaps because I moved to England about 10 years ago, that made me shift my focus and look away from America. But I've also been interested in how Japan's experiences in China then then looked and reshaped uh, Japanese modern history. So it sort of came from that understanding or that desire to re-examine parts of Japanese uh, history. And then when you, when you did dig bigger into the war and the immediate post-war, you find a real lacuna in both scholarship, which, again, tends to quickly forget the empire, even with kind of recent moves to look at repatriation uh, and to look at how Japan ended the war. Scholarship tends to focus on what the Japanese themselves were doing internally or on the American occupation. And when I began to look at it, I began to ask a lot of questions, and I, I actually got a, a grant. I mean, that's, you know, what helps you start on a project is you tend to get some kind of research money. Mm-hmm. And this particular project started with a completely fallacious assumption, which was that it was the Korean War which really changed things for Japan in, in summer of 1950. And that's, that was the kind of uh, postulation I was starting with. I thought, oh, I'm going to start with the Korean War, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in and look at East Asian history from the Korean War. And I started to do that, and I realized that my entire set of assumptions were completely incorrect. Not only did I not know anything about really how the Korean War affected Japan, probably should have, but I, I, I was too late. I didn't know enough about what had happened from the end of 1945 and the end of empire that then shaped what was happening in Korea, what was happening in China, and then what was happening with the Korean War. And that kind of perplexed me. And I realized that I needed to go back to the end of empire, to that moment when everything flips over and the Japanese are no longer in control in East Asia. And how that evolution of the cascading set of events from the end of empire lead through the Korean War and then kind of shape Japan in the 1950s. So that's the, that was the larger setup, and that took a couple of years to actually kind of figure out. And then it was a set of questions over those years. I, I got another grant, uh, strangely, um, after that, and I was able to kind of spend more time in China and Taiwan. And it was this constant set of questions about what was going on in China and Taiwan, what was happening at what I call the periphery of empire, with a population of Japanese that had not experienced defeat in the same way that Japanese on the home islands had experienced kind of daily bombings in the last six months, but you know, kind of the threat of the end of war. And of course, the Japanese military in the Pacific uh, that were retreating constantly, almost really since the summer of 1942 with the Battle of Midway. And we don't see that in the China theater or the Korea theater or the Taiwan theater. So half of the Japanese empire really does not experience defeat either in the same way as the rest of Japan or the home islands or at all until the very end. And that has a big set of, it is a very large influence that has, I would argue, therefore, on the way in which empire ends and what that means. (laughs) And then the last part of that is, is when you're looking at the end of empire, you're looking at the recreation or the the establishment of a new post-war order in East Asia. 
And for me, uh, what I began to look at, perhaps being influenced by how that happened in Europe and thinking about Nuremberg and thinking about this idea of trials and war crimes trials, is this idea of justice. Um, and there's been a lot of work on the Tokyo war crimes trials, but there wasn't a lot of work when I first started. There's actually quite a number of international projects going on now, but there wasn't a lot of work on the lower class war criminals, the BC class. And it began to dawn on me that one way of understanding how empire ends and how the Chinese assert their authority and how new powers, let's say, you know, for the Vietnamese in North Vietnam uh, or Koreans or the KMT in Taiwan um, or the Indonesians in uh, Indonesia over the Dutch. But one of the ways in which both European powers tried to reassert themselves in East Asia and East Asian nationalist groups tried to assert themselves against both the Japanese and former colonial powers is through this process of searching for justice and the use of international law. And that's what drew me to the war crimes trials within this larger uh, paradigm. Fantastic. Thank you. And you've already mentioned a bunch of really juicy bits that take us beautifully into the first chapter. So one of the things that you've um, mentioned already is the importance of looking at the edges of empire, right? And this is actually um, super, super important for bringing us into the first chapter. Now, the first chapter looks at the crumbling of the empire at the imperial edge beyond the home island borders. And one of the things that you're showing here is that the Japanese surrender, even though it's you know dated in a particular date, a particular time, it actually wasn't a single moment. It played out very differently at different times in different ways in different localities of the empire. And, and many people outside of the home islands um, and Okinawa, uh, where the uh, American occupation was, didn't actually um, or couldn't really grasp in the same way that the Japanese had actually lost. And so this becomes really, really important for understanding what comes next. Now, at the end of World War II, there are a number of um, entities vying for power. Okay, So it's not just the former Imperial Japan, but it's also the U.S., it's the KMT, it's the CCP, um, and all of these are embroiled in um, what happens in the story to come. Now, in this competitive context, the notions of international war, or rather international law, as you were just mentioning, mentioning before, and concomitant notions of justice are kind of coming into formation and being formed and being reformed. And in this context, and especially in this competitive context, you show here that it was important for the Chinese, in your words, to demonstrate international responsibility by properly trying Japan's war criminals. Okay, so what did, um, in the context of what international law looked like, um, at the time, and from the perspective of China specifically, what did a proper trial for war crimes look like? <laughs> I'm not. That's like sure. a trick question, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no one answer, probably. But can you well, that's the, that that's, that's the interesting point. I mean, this is very new for Europe and for America, and you know, Great Britain being included in Europe, and there, the United Nations. Um, War Crimes Commission, which had kind of, you know, begun as an idea and it picks up steam through the early 1940s with exiled European governments in London, really gets going by kind of 1944, 1945. So there's the idea of a new set of laws, you know, kind of crimes against peace, crimes against humanity that surpass sovereign notions of law, that you can try members of one country in a third country, even if neither country is being represented um, at that court. And that's a huge new idea for, they tried it in World War I, it didn't, wasn't very successful with pursuing the Kaiser and pursuing uh, German war criminals, kind of ends in a, in a somewhat fiasco in the Leipzig trials. Um, but it comes back again, basically due to Nazi atrocities and the Nazi pursuit of genocide. And the Chinese are aware of this, and they are paying attention in the 1940s. But the Chinese are also wary at the same time of the idea of international law. And it, it's a strange dilemma for the Chinese, because if you think what's happening, what's been happening in China really since the Opium War, is that this idea of international law has been used as a bludgeon in China to kind of wrench open treaty ports and to keep 
Westerners, but also Japanese, so mainly foreigners, out of the reach of the sovereignty of Chinese law. While we have treaty ports, it meant, you know, if a British subject uh, causes a problem in an international treaty port, that they will be tried by British law, not under Chinese law, which meant the Chinese really had no jurisdiction over foreigners. And the Chinese are well aware of this problem by the 19-teens. And in fact, by the 1920s, uh, the KMT, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, is really kind of calling this their biggest international problem. So on one hand, the Chinese are wary of the tool of international law being used against themselves, against the Chinese, against themselves. On the other hand, they're seeing it as a possible mode or process through which they can reclaim the mantle of authority from the Japanese and from uh, other foreign powers from 1943 on. And the reason is, is that in 1943, the Western powers finally abrogate the extraterritoriality treaties that they have with China, and they restore full sovereignty to China. So at the end of Japan's empire, the end of World War II in China, is this kind of perfect storm of all of these events coming together. It is going to be a test of the Chinese ability for the first time in its history to use their sovereign law in a court, in this case it's a military tribunal, through the use of this new set of international laws, new tools to adjudicate uh, war crimes of Japanese. What a better way to prove that the Chinese are now on top, that they understand the international rules of law and protocol, and that they can pursue the Japanese. And that's the problem. And, and so the question then within that is, what is the perfect trial? Is no one knows, because it hasn't been pursued yet. Mm-hmm. And Everyone is scurrying around in East Asia to figure out this, what does the perfect trial look at, uh, look like? Uh, and the interesting thing is, is what I call, um, you know, I think after you finish the book, you kind of realize perhaps what was the one nugget of information you should have, you know, put in bold type in the introduction, and that will come out in volume two. But as you, <laughs> as you rightly pulled out, what I, what I think we see here is this competition for justice, is that everyone is struggling at this moment to use Japanese war criminals as the way to reestablish their authority. The French are doing it in Indochina because they've lost their colony. The Dutch are doing it in Indonesia. The British are doing it in on the Malayan Peninsula and in Hong Kong. Uh, and, of course, the Americans are doing it uh, in Yokohama and on the Pacific Islands. Everyone is pursuing them, and the Chinese are one of these many groups. Um, however, interestingly... Aside from the Filipinos, they are the only other Asian entity to using their own sovereign law and the tool of international law to pursue uh, Japanese war crimes. And it's not easy. And they're messy, which we're going to get into. Right. Uh, we're definitely yeah. going to get into. Um, so in, when we're talking about war crimes, there is a bit of a precedent that is shaping at least the categories and the concepts that we're talking about now. And for listeners who hear us talking about things like class A, class B, class C, I'll just lay out super briefly what that means, right? So there there are three categories of war crimes that were judged at Nuremberg, and these become the template for the war crimes trials that we're going to be talking about that involve Japan. So class A war crimes are in your very clear um, words from the book, men who planned and executed Japan's war but didn't necessarily kind of personally put those plans into action. So those were the um, uh, war crimes, these Class A war crimes that were tried at the Tokyo war crimes trials that we'll talk about in a moment. Then there was Class B, conventional war crimes, and Class C, crimes against humanity. And in the trials that we're going to be talking about for the rest of our time after the Tokyo war crime trials, um, class B and C are pretty much um, combined into a kind of BC class. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So that's kind of where we are for listeners um, who may have been like me when I first read this and thought, BC, A, what's going on there? So that's what right. we're talking about in terms of class A, class B, class C. Okay. So the class A war crimes trials um, that you talk about a lot in the book are these Tokyo war crimes trials. These have received um, a lot more attention than the BC war crimes trials. So I'm not going to um, ask you to talk too much about them. But in Chapter 1, you do lay out really beautifully, um, I think, some of the really interesting things that are happening um, during in the context of the Tokyo war crimes trials as Japan's immediate response 
um, to uh, surrender and to the conditions immediately thereafter is bound up in um, questions about how to assess war crimes. And there's a really wonderful moment here where you talk about an archive of almost 400 hours of recorded discussions on the possible prosecution for war crimes by the Japanese Imperial Navy. So listeners who are particularly interested in the um, kind of the relationships between the differences between the Imperial Navy and the Army, right, as different branches of the military, um, might find a special and an, an especially interesting point of engagement in Chapter One um, when you talk about these recordings of um, rec- of these discussions. And actually, while we're on that, is the, these four hundred hours of recorded discussion. So, for a historian, that immediately jumps out in like you know, like neon flashing lights like whoa what a cool source like is that something that's immediately available and did you work with those discussions at all um the 400 hours of tape is was a post-war set of meetings uh within a within a subgroup of the post-war japanese navy and it was a group that was specially designed in a sense to impede of the prosecution of naval officers for war crimes. I was not privy. Uh, I did talk with the director of the NHK documentary. It was a set of three documentaries. Uh, they are the ones who went through all 400 hours, which were on kind of the small cassette tape. Uh, so there was a book and then I talked to the director and then, um, I had access to the, the NHK DVD. And there's actually also, it just came out, an English version of the NHK a documentary that, that listeners might be interested in. But a lot of the archives that fed the 400 hours have recently been released in the national archives in Japan over the last few years. And we had to request declassification and also in the Asakuni Shrine archives. So there's some corroboration that, that could be done kind of uh, beforehand. But I'd also like to go back to a point when you mentioned the Tokyo War Crimes trial, mm-hmm. that one of the interesting things that I think we often forget is the scale of the pursuit of justice in the post-war. That it's originally 28 defendants that gets whittled down a few uh, for the Tokyo War Crimes trial in the last two and a half years. But when we look at BC-class war crimes all across East Asia, it's 5,700 individuals and 2,244 cases. So this is kind of another reason that we shouldn't only focus on Nuremberg and Tokyo, but we really need to go down to the local level to find out what's happening all across East Asia. That's right. Thank you so much. So as we move, um, kind of, as we start to move away from Tokyo War Crimes Trial, Mm. um, we move away from that by looking actually at something that was happening during that trial, which gives us a kind of arrow to point beyond. And this takes us back to the question of how China is dealing with international law and how China is dealing with, you know, what does it mean to not just try um, Japanese war criminals, but also to perform right in this context. So the state of Chinese law during the prosecution of Japan's war crimes was precarious, right? This is coming into being. Um, You've talked already about their experience with extraterritoriality, Right, and they're sort of um, concerned with international law because of that. Now, the Chinese prosecution team at the Tokyo trial didn't do such a great job, and this becomes important for understanding what comes next. So, could you take us into that? So, we're at the Tokyo war crimes trial. Um, we're following the Chinese prosecution team. Um, what are they doing that's perhaps not really serving their best interests here? They're struggling with the International Court of Law and the kind of UK-Americans. We don't often think of the UK and the American system of laws as the same, but they're different than uh, continental law in that the Chinese were expecting that they could pretty much throw whatever evidence they wanted to in court and then the judges would decide uh, what was good and uh, what to, you know, kind of what to throw out. Whereas it, it was pursued much more along the lines of the American combative justice system, where uh, lawyers argue out about each point of evidence um, or testimony before the judges. And that, of course, made the court drag on much longer than uh, the Chinese were expecting. And, of course, it meant that they weren't very prepared to argue about each piece of evidence that they submitted. So a lot was not cons- was not considered uh, submittable or worthy of being evidence at an international criminal tribunal. It is interesting to note that kind of contemporary Chinese books 
which have only really started to talk about this in the last 10 to 15 years, uh, tend to valorize, perhaps overvalorize the Chinese uh, participation in the trial that it was Judge Meiwurao who really was the one who you know, helped send uh, the top seven Japanese to the gallows. Whereas if you look at the memoirs at the time of part of the diary of Mei Ruao, who was the Chinese judge, also uh, Qin Dechun, who was uh, part of the prosecution uh, team, and uh, Ni, uh, Ni Zhang Yu, who was uh, a consultant to the prosecution team. In their memoirs, they are hesitant to overvalorize their participation in the Tokyo war crimes trial. And in fact, they are a bit despondent about their own participation. And they say, we need to go back to kind of square one and really dig in. Uh, and that seems to have had an influence then on the BC class trials back in China. That again, Chinese don't feel they're performing up to expectation and they need to give a better showing, at least for the KMT trials from 1946 to 1949, because they're being watched by the world. So there's a there's kind of a split of judgment between at the time and then how contemporary Chinese are perhaps, um, you know, there was a recent film in 2006 about the Tokyo war crimes trial that just really is almost a, a hagiography of uh, Judge Mei Rao and a bit that's almost a, a bit too much overdone. There's a story you bring us into here um, about the seating plan, you know, like the, the whole orchestration of which judge gets to sit where and next to which other judge. And this becomes this big, like dramatic thing, right, uh, that, um, in this context of the trial. Not only big, not only big in, in the trial and then in the film, of course, but in every article about the Chinese judge, this is always brought out as the moment when China finally gets to sit on center stage. And, you know, in part, they might be right. Um, but if that's the extent of their participation in international law, then we have a little more discussion to kind of have. And we will have a little bit more discussion <laughs> right now. So the, you mentioned the um, the issue of uh, poor evidence, right? Or uh, the, the notion of what evidence was and what was expected in terms of evidence in this particular legal context was not a notion that was shared across everybody um, who was involved in trying these cases. And of course, um, the Chinese prosecutor's notion of evidence that they brought to the table was not considered adequate. Um, by the judges, right, and by the other side. Yeah, well, and, sorry? Right. Um, we should say th- uh, this is not for every piece, but this was a trend that was definitely uh, a problem for them. Right. And so you, you mentioned here in the second chapter that because of the ongoing civil war, the Chinese prosecution team had actually had trouble collecting more evidence once they realized theirs was inadequate. And this actually brings us into a really important um, uh, relationship and a really important mover of the action for the rest of the book. And this is the struggle for legitimacy among the CCP and the KMT. Right. So as we move into the next chapter, we see some of this playing out. Okay, so when we move into the next chapter, we move into the KMT um, trying to deal with the problem of Taiwan and the Taiwanese um, in the uh, larger context of figuring out these war crimes for um, figuring out what to do about these war crimes. And part of the question here becomes, okay, what's the difference between a traitor and a war criminal? Okay, So can you bring us into um, briefly sort of what's going on on Taiwan? And for Taiwanese, um, and from the perspective of the KMT in this context, and how are they deciding, how is the KMT deciding what and who is a war criminal and what and who is a traitor and why is the distinction different? This is one of the big issues, I think, when we look at empire at the periphery because it brings up all these rather fuzzy domains of who was a member of the empire and who wasn't. And of course, at the moment when the empire fails, this all changes and what does it mean? And this is on the on the stage for the KMT and somewhat for the CCP, but mostly for the KMT to debate really starting perhaps from 1943 and 44, when maybe in some way they can see that at some point the war will end and they begin to plan for it. And they talk in internal discussions. The KMT says, what are we going to do? We, we acknowledge that the Japanese have been doing a very good job running Taiwan, which means when we take it over, 
and this becomes very clear clear after the, the, the Cairo Declaration, uh, what's, what's going to happen when we take it over? How are we going to take these Japanese slash Taiwanese subjects, they've been part of the Japanese empire now for half a century, and bring them back into the motherland? And then how do we treat them? Uh, you know, there are Japanese sol- there are Taiwanese who are Japanese soldiers because they, they legally had Japanese citizenship. Uh, they go to Japanese schools. They learn Japanese culture. What are we going to do with them after the war? And are they the same as other Japanese soldiers? And it's a discussion that really starts in the mid-1940s and keeps going. And it, it seems they're continually changing the laws and their views towards the Taiwanese. And this is also a moment of proving legitimacy. It, it, it continues from 1945 to 1949, and then it becomes – it continues to be an issue after 1949 because, of course, the KMT has to flee to Taiwan, and they become the dominant legal force um, on Taiwan separate from the mainland. And then – they have to kind of prove to the Taiwanese that they're better than the Japanese. And, of course, this then gets into this whole idea of the struggle for legitimacy. Um, it's not clear uh, at any one moment because at times they use Hanjian, they use the term traitor. Sometimes they say Hanjian John Fan, so it's traitor, war criminal, all massed together when they're talking about the Taiwanese or the Japanese. And sometimes they're pursued just as regular criminals. So perhaps uh, a policeman in Taiwan in Ilan province who is being charged for the death of uh, someone who he's arrested will be charged as merely a regular criminal or a traitor. And then someone in a different province in a different year will be tried as a war criminal. And it's one of the things I've been working on a lot more lately. I've just got a, a much larger group of, of Taiwanese archives. If I could figure out if there's any pattern. It doesn't necessarily seem to be, but it's an element within the KMT's overall struggle on the mainland because they also have to prove to uh, the mainland Chinese, this is how we're treating former Japanese imperial uh, subjects. And that has an influence, therefore, on how they're seen uh, on the mainland. And they have a continual kind of argument with the CCP about this and all these overseas Taiwanese who occupy, you know, oftentimes fairly prestigious positions in former parts of the Japanese empire, including up in Manchukuo. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the chapter pays um, special attention to what's happening to Taiwanese living in Japan at this point. For example, Taiwanese living in Tokyo who are um, selling goods, right? And who are selling goods in the black market. Now, once, um, once the Japanese surrender takes place, Legally speaking, Taiwanese in Japan, for example, Taiwanese living in Tokyo, have a very different legal status because of their ethnicity, right? Um, and so they're actually subject to different laws than somebody who is ethnically defined. And what that means, right, is and then, well, and then how do you how do you define it? Is it? I mean, it's it's super complicated. Immediately, they do not. They are considered to be uh, not Japanese and therefore as the Americans, because the Chinese are victors, they are no longer subject to Japanese law and they really only be subject to military occupation law or UN law. And that becomes really difficult when you have, you know, as you're talking about the Shibuya incident, um, (laughs) which you have this kind of huge mob uh, riot uh, in in center of Tokyo and a few die and the police are there with Taiwanese gangs who are fighting with uh, Japanese gangs. Who's at fault? And where can the, the Taiwanese and the Japanese be tried? In fact, they have to try the, the Taiwanese in an American military court because the Japanese don't have jurisdiction. So it becomes a huge mess. This is part of this kind of imperial uh, the mess that we don't think about necessarily. We only think about Japanese history within its own islands. And you show in this chapter, and this is really important, and so I want to, uh, among other things, mark this for listeners who are particularly interested in histories of identity and notions of identity. You're showing here that one of the biggest challenges in this whole um, story becomes determining ethnic identity for, uh, you, you know, for lots of different kinds of people and what that looks like and what it means and how you go about doing that and what the categories are, are not at all self-evident. And the the outcome of this determination of ethnic identity at the level of the individual and of the group has massive, massive ramifications, um, life and death ramifications here. And so this becomes bound up in a story from the very beginning of, what it, of, of identity um, at the individual and the group level. It's really, really interesting. 
Thank you. So as we move forward, so we've already talked a little bit about um, when talking about Taiwan and the KMT's challenges in Taiwan, we've talked a little bit about um, what the KMT is doing in terms of how it's deciding to prosecute and to try war criminals. And as we move into the next chapter, we move um, in much, much more detail into a space that lets us look very specifically at cases in which the KMT is trying, in some cases prosecuting, or in some cases indicting, in some cases not, um, individual war criminals. And this becomes important because, um, among other things, as we've already talked about and as you show in a renewed sense here, this is a moment when the KMT and the CCP are vying for power on the world stage and how they choose to deal with war criminals um, from the Japan War um, is very, very important for both showing um, their different strategies and also for understanding how their different approaches to trying war criminals are bound up in this struggle for power amongst uh, or with one another. So the KMT's trials of BC-class war criminals began April 1946 in Beijing, and they continued in major cities for three years. Now, the chapter um, that I'm talking about, Chapter 4, looks at four representative cases, each of which represent what you call a kind of genre of the sort of decision-making process um, processes that they had to make, the KMT. So these four cases are different sorts of cases. We won't have time to talk about each one of them, but I'll just kind of mention them and, and ask you to open up some of them for us. The first one is the indictment and trial of Lieutenant General Sakai Takashi. He is the only Japanese executed for crimes committed in Hong Kong, um, which was a British colony occupied by Japan during the war. So that becomes um, important in all kinds of ways. There's also a moment when you talk about him um, that you talk about uh, a particular source, an entrance ticket with rules of courtroom behavior, which is yeah. just you know a really interesting kind of historical document, an entrance ticket. Mm. The second case is the arrest, extradition from Japan to China, and then the trial of Lieutenant General Tani Hisao. Now, he is one of the few high-ranking Japanese authorities that the Chinese could prosecute for the Nanjing massacre. So let's take a moment and talk a little bit about that case. Why him, and what's important about um, that particular case for us to understand in order to understand the larger points you're making about the KMT kind of genres of prosecution here? I think the issue with Tani Hisao is that, first of all, it's the archetypal atrocity in Chinese memory. And the Chinese have been looking at Nanjing and talking about it really since uh, 1938. And they're poised at the end of the war to ask for high-ranking Japanese officers such as Matsui Iwane who they feel are responsible for the Nanjing massacre. And this is, again, where we get into this competition for justice, because if we think about it, Japan's war was 15 years uh, long, essentially, on and off. And many of the high-ranking individuals that had kind of been in Nanjing in 1937, they are already have been repatriated back to Japan eight years later at the end of the war. They're no longer in China. And so the end of the war sees the guys that the Chinese would like to have arrested arrested and extradited to China as being arrested as A-class war criminals or high-ranking BC by the Americans awaiting trial. And Tanahisao is kind of low enough down on the food chain known to the, to the Chinese, the KMT, and arrestable, obtainable in Japan because the Americans are not interested in him. And in some ways, it's kind of this horse trading contest between the Americans and the Chinese. But you see this between the French and the Chinese and the British and the Chinese. All this diplomatic traffic going back and forth saying, you know, we'll give you this guy if you give us this guy. Can we have this guy? The British actually ask at one point, you know, can we sit on the trial of uh, Lieutenant General Sakai? Can we be on the dais with other judges? And the Chinese say, that would kind of infringe on our sovereignty, wouldn't it, if we had a British judge in a Chinese courtroom? Uh, And, of course, the British say, well, we didn't mean that really, which, of course, they they do mean that. Mm -hmm. Um, So Tani Hisao is there. It's a moment. And is he – I mean, this is the question one has to ask. Is he a scapegoat? Is the pursuit of justice viable that the the Chinese are creating? Um, I still waffle perhaps a bit, uh, but I think it's an important trial to look at for the process. 
And also one of the things you brought up um, highlights, and we don't have to talk about this in depth, but just to, to mark it again, it highlights the importance of understanding the relationship at this point between the KMT and the U.S., right? That's right. And yes. similarly, that's going to also be important when we look at the CCP trials, which are very, very different from this. Um, in the background or perhaps in the foreground or middle ground here, um, in understanding the kinds of decisions that the KMT is making to prosecute war crimes, um, is the sort of understanding how they are relating to the U.S. and how the U.S. is relating to them. And so one of the things that happens as a result of the second um, uh, trial of Tani Hisao is that there are images, and you show this here, of the execution of him and also others in Chinese newspapers, and Americans see these images, very, very graphic images, and this becomes part of the larger story of how um, these war crimes are playing out in terms of the larger relationship and foreign uh, relations between the U.S. and China. That's true. I, I would be fair, though, to the Chinese, you know, kind of as one moves along in research, you always find things that overturn your previous hypothesis. <laughs> but it turns out that the British actually have newsreels of a lot of these executions. Mm-hmm. And so I do wonder, first of all, it wasn't just the Chinese, it seems, taking these pictures. The British were actually quite graphic in their newsreels. They didn't show the actual shot, but they showed the before and the direct after of the dead body having been executed in Chinese and other war crimes trials uh, or executions after the trial sentencing. So I wonder if there was a worldwide trend, perhaps, that also uh, was, was taking place and not just the Chinese. Right. And this but this trend, regardless maybe of where it's showing up, is also coding this, these images of gruesome executions precisely. as Chinese. Right? That's so, precisely, yes. So there's a third trial as well that we won't um, talk too much about, but this is also related to um, how the Nanjing Massacre is dominating what's happening here. This is the prosecution of second lieutenants Noda Takeshi and Mukai Toshiaki for the infamous hundred man killing contest. This is a right. context that was a contest that was very well known in the press. Um, and one of among other things, one of the things you bring us into here is the question of um, the way that the kind of rhetoric and the narrative of this hundred man killing context contest becomes concretized as a historical fact in certain textbooks and why might that be what are the consequences of that and how might that open up a larger you know discussion for us about the ways that these events are um, kind of factized in textbooks and and the ramifications for that for understanding you know the larger um, term ripples of what what's happening in these war crimes trials yes so the fourth um, case is the release, actually, the release, not the, um, not the indictment, of an officer labeled as China's number one war criminal, General Okamura Yasuji. Now, he's released and he's treated very specially. And part of understanding why that might have been takes us into a case study that you, ta- you focus on in the next chapter. It seamlessly glides into chapter five. Seamlessly, it? exactly. It's beautiful. I'm glad you noticed that. I did. I, well, I love that stuff. I love this. I love these kinds of structural um, you know, moments of beauty in a book, and this is definitely one of them. So he went on to help establish something called the White Group in Taiwan. What is the White Group, and what is significant about it in terms of the larger story you're telling here? The White Group was a post-1949 until the late 1960s, almost 20 years, of former Japanese military officers who, at first in secret and illegally, because of course Japan was occupied and Japanese were not allowed to travel abroad, went to Taiwan in a at the request of the head of the KMT, Chiang Kai-shek, to teach both military strategy and science and kind of military idealism to uh, the KMT uh, lower staff officers in a bid so that the KMT could re-strengthen and retake the mainland. A lot of money was spent on this, and the interesting point, as you noted, that kind of ties the BC class war crimes trials together with this post-war history, is that General Okumura Yasuji was instrumental in helping to form this group. He was approached by the right-hand man of uh, Chiang Kai-shek and uh, helps start up the core group that then uh, starts the first platoon, several individuals that go over and teach. Uh, Was the white group responsible for helping 
the KMT in one of its famous defeats, or one of its few defeats, really, of uh, CCP forces. The, the jury is still out on that, um, but the connection is there. And, and historians have asked for a long time, was justice not pursued against Okamura Yasuji, who was the last Japanese imperial commander uh, of Japanese forces in China, because Chiang Kai-shek wanted kind of a, a, a quid pro quo, that by letting Okamura off and going back to Japan, that he could then gain the friendship and the use of Japanese military science post, post-Civil War to help retake the mainland. And this is a discussion that continues today. Mm. So before we move to a focus study that um, directly compares what's going on with the CCP, right, how they are dealing with war crimes and why the differences are so instructive and important, we're going to segue for a moment into Japan. Now, in 1952, and this is a a year that's dealt with, and the repercussions of this year are dealt with in the next chapter, Chapter 6, 1952 is a big year for Japan. Things were changing, and... In the context of understanding how things were changing in this year um, and you know, dealing with the Korean War and, and understanding how the Korean War is shaping what's going on here is part of the story. But as you mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation, it's not definitive right, for understanding what's going on. But understanding how, what's happening in the context of 1952 and after is here about understanding how Japan is dealing with its war criminals in the context of peace. Now, you mentioned um, in this chapter, and I think beyond, peace doesn't just happen, right? Peace has to be made. It's a very complicated process. And as a result of this complicated process, or, or part of this complicated process, is dealing with its own war criminals and understanding what that means. Okay, so you take us into uh, the Japanese peace movement and, and the concomitant post-war treatment of war criminals and bring us into a context where there's a kind of trope of self-pity. Self-pity at being, in your words, convicted of war crimes over which an individual supposedly had no control. So there's a lot of media in this context in Japan that are dealing with this problem. Well, in, in what sense is it an individual's responsibility when they carry out um, activities that are really not about them individually and what they want? And why should we prosecute these men as war criminals? Um, how do we understand that? Why aren't we prosecuting allied forces who dropped bombs on Japanese cities and also killed civilians? So what's happening here um, in this context of um, peacetime Japan and this trope of, of self-pity? I I think the issue, what's happening in 1952, obviously ties in with the six and a half years of occupation that had really clamped down on this discussion in Japan. I mean, the immediate end of war in Japan sees the Navy, the Army, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the, the government all trying to do their best to mitigate, to any extent possible, the pursuit of domestic war crimes. And... Because this, the occupation is also censured, censored, there's not a huge discussion domestically in Japan uh, about war crimes. It's somewhat there, but it, it's not that massive. And Japan is immediately built on uh, reforming, restructuring, and rebuilding. By the time we get to 1952, at the end of the occupation, mentally the Japanese are finished with this pursuit of wartime responsibility. Not that they ever really pursued it during the six and a half years, but they felt enough enough time had gone through and they are already prepared to think about themselves as a reformed democracy, which is interesting because very, it's half the length of the war and already people are kind of talking about the new Japan uh, as if all the former imperial attitudes and imperial education and systems had already kind of somehow mysteriously dropped out of sight or changed. Um, and that turns into sympathy for war criminals. And we see uh, they're they're repatriating from uh, the other former uh, occupied countries. They are not being treated well in Japanese society. Their pensions have been denied until until after the occupation. We see a flurry of laws that bring back pensions for uh, either accused, indicted, uh, arrested, whatnot, uh, war criminals, and moves to push for what the Japanese feel is the appropriate moment 
amnesty of war criminals, and that should be when peace returns, with the San Francisco Peace Treaty being promulgated in, in April of, of 1952. And they're shocked that that's not the situation, that it's only half a piece for them. This is why they're so dissatisfied. They feel that they are not being treated fairly by the international community, that a real peace treaty usually allows for the pardoning of those who have kind of contravened the laws prior. And there's a specific clause put in the San Francisco Peace Treaty, which says that the Japanese do not have full legal jurisdiction over war criminals, that only the countries that tried each war criminal are the ones who can parole or abrogate or offer clemency. And that continues to be an issue until the late 1950s. Now, you ask us in this chapter how you ask us to consider how we might understand the movement to release and have sympathy for war criminals in Japan and the narrative of victimization that goes with that, insofar as it may have shaped the broader context of Japanese discussions of their own responsibility in the war, or sometimes the absence of discussions of responsibility. So do you want to speak to that very briefly? Um, issue of responsibility and I mean it's it, it's a very timely topic right because we're, we're kind of seeing that now in Japan there's been a huge uh, deluge of news articles about uh, collective security in Japan or Japan reforming its constitution to allow for soldiers to be uh, deployed and it's the it's the 70th year end of, of the war and Prime Minister Abe has formed a kind of coalition to think about what statement the government is going to make. And this all hinges on, was it an aggressive war or was it not? Was Japan defending itself? And within that discussion, which has been going on for 70 years, is this idea of, of responsibility that really at the heart of it is the question of these war crimes trials. Did these war crimes trials pursue crimes the Japanese need to discuss. And, you know, that's why, again, I don't look at the A-class. I look at the BC. I look at the rape. I look at the murder. I look at the pillaging. I look at the confiscation, looting. These are not abstract terms. These are specific crimes committed in the name of the emperor, in the name of empire mm-hmm. um, within China and obviously elsewhere. And this comes to the forefront, really, after 1952, and it comes to the forefront in as Japan reestablishes diplomatic relations with all of its Asian neighbors. And it's not something that has had closure to it. Uh, and it is still kind of lingering out there as an issue. And for me, it lingers out there as an issue because it goes back to the idea of how the war crimes trials were viewed. You mentioned, you know, they're viewed as lopsided because many Japanese will complain that they were unjustly pursued, that the trials had problems, or that if they were really a pursuit of war crimes, then the allies should have been pursued also. <laughs> but that doesn't get to the heart of the question, which is not, you know, are we going to pursue other war crimes? It's how do the Japanese themselves face what the wrath of their empire kind of brought forward uh, or what the goals of their empire uh, were. And there is an inability perhaps to really get to the heart of that in the 1950s. And one way of avoiding it in part is to only look sympathetically at war criminals as opposed to critically. (laughs) Thank you, Brock. Now, as we move toward um, the end of the book, we move to a chapter that does what I've been promising we would talk about, right, for, uh, for many minutes. And this is um, allowing us a look into the ways that the CCP were nice. um, trying war criminals in contrast to what we've been talking about, which is the KMT Right, prosecution of, or trying at least, of yes. war criminals. Now, in the 1956 CCP war crimes trials, and um, this is a context you treat in Chapter 7, every single Japanese prisoner admitted their crimes. Every single Japanese prisoner <laughs> admitted their crimes. Very, very few had done this. It's the holy grail of war crimes trials, it's, right? It's, <laughs> it's, it's astounding. It's astounding. <laughs> so let's. I'm just going to hit the ball back to you um, and ask you to talk about this. What are some of the major differences between the CCP war crimes trials and the KMT ones that would have brought about this really astounding result? I guess there are several issues. The first issue is that the CCP face the major problem that they 
only really have very, very, very few Japanese in their midst by the time they take full power and are pushing for war crimes trials uh, in the 1950s. They had about 140 Japanese uh, officers who had uh, surrendered in 1949 because they had become an extra platoon under Yenshishan in Shanxi province. These are called, these were the Arinoheitai, the ant troops. So the war doesn't end for Japan in 1945. They kind of joined forces with the KMT and continued to fight in the civil war against the CCP. It's a very small group, and they're in Taiyu and in Shanxi province. And then the CCP are gifted uh, a thousand, uh, about a thousand Japanese uh, prisoners by Stalin in the summer of 1950. So that makes up the, you know, and they're given to them by Stalin because Stalin kind of feels bad that he didn't support Mao Zedong in 1945. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting because, so here we have men who they got in 1949 and then they're gifted a thousand or so prisoners in, in 1950. The trial is not until 1956. And the reason for that and the difference therefore with the KMT trials is that the, the CCP are also struggling with what do we do? I mean, it's fascinating to think that Their trial is 11 years after the end of the war, but they're still using the same trope that the KMT had used from 1946 to 1949. That is, we're going to use the tool or the the example of a Japanese war criminal to demonstrate both domestically, because the CCP is still struggling for its own domestic legitimacy, but also internationally to show that they're better than the Japanese, but also better than the KMT, and that they really understand justice and benevolence. And so much so that they prepare these Japanese prisoners for years. Re-education, uh, rectification kind of, you know, mental campaign. Some call it brainwashing. I would not because the, the result is different. But the result after years of this indoctrination or training is that these Japanese high-ranking officers, for the most part, some government officials from Manchukuo, admit their guilt. They admit their guilt in open court, uh, basically 960 of them are repatriated pretty quickly uh, in 1956, and the rest serve out various sentences until 1964, when the last one, uh, or last three, repatriated to Japan. Now, no one, no one was executed. No one was executed. No That's one correct. was executed. Okay, and in uh, your discussion of this re-education and the processes and practices of this re-education, um, this is where part of the title of the book comes from, right? The, the idea that these prisoners are transformed from devils back into men That's through right. this process of re-education. And there's a really, um, really detailed, very, very illuminating discussion in this chapter of the conditions at the various prisons that these, um, that these prisoners are held in. And so listeners with a special interest in the history of prisons um, and the sort of the everyday daily life conditions of and, and practices of these prisoners within these spaces, um, we'll find a lot of really fascinating material in Chapter 7. And there are several prisons that you actually talk about here. Really, really interesting. Now, what was the outcome? Um, if we can sort of, uh, as we move toward the conclusion, right, we move toward wrapping up, what yes. was the outcome of the CCP approach toward Japanese war criminals relative to their goals? Did this satisfy... Um, the kinds of goals that they initially had when they decided on this re-education rather than sort of um, punishment policy relative to the KMT? They definitely, you know, we should first say that they don't arrive at this decision that easily. Mm -hmm. It takes time. At one point, there are internal discussions within higher-ranking CCP documents that say, should we shoot them all? And they say, well, no, that really doesn't get us what we want. It is ironic to think that the CCP trials are arguably more illegal in the scope of international law because they kept these guys, you know, kind of they've been in, many have been imprisoned first in Soviet Union for five years as, as laborers and then in China, so 11 years or so. And then they tried them. Um, they're the most successful in both the CCP estimates of what they kind of get in terms of, you know, for the, the phrase bang for their buck. Um, most of these Japanese prisoners go to Japan when they're repatriated, and even those who are sentenced and go after, and they join a group that starts in 1957 called the Chukiden, which is kind of, you know, the Chinese liaison group of, of returned 
among Japanese prisoners. They, they form a lobby group. They are one of the first groups to publish openly about the atrocities that the Japanese military uh, effected in China. And they have continued as a force within Japanese society for both improving Jap- Sino-Japanese relations, but also admitting war guilt up until the very present. And the only reason they're starting to disappear is that most of these men are now in their 90s, uh, if any of them are left uh, alive at all. And uh, they're kind of, uh, you know, speaking p- truth to power in post-war Japan that, you know, as we talked about with the previous chapter, it doesn't really want to talk about this anymore. And they're kind of shunned by Japanese society, but uh, they, they, you know, they invite their former jailers to Japan. They go back to Japan and erect a monument in front of Fushin Prison, uh, where they had been. Uh, that might be a first in kind of a history of war, criminal, uh, war criminals that, you know, you, you go back and thank your former jailers for how they treated you and kind of how they made you uh, see the world anew. And they say, we have been reborn. And that kind of, you know, that's that men to devils and then devils back to men idea that, that rings true. So on, on one hand, we have to look at it critically, legally. On the other hand, uh, perhaps morally or just historically, uh, is a fascinating moment in, in Sino-Japanese history. That's right. So, Barack, there's a, a really detailed and really wonderful conclusion here that we won't have time to get to in any <laughs> real depth, but I'll just mention for listeners, um, the conclusion, among other things, is paying attention here to modern fiction and film in China and Japan and in the ways that the war crimes and a reconsideration of the war crimes has played a central role in some of the narratives that have been worked out in those media. You also um, talk about and you ask us to think about why these trials have largely been ignored until recently and kind of where this leaves us now. So maybe a nice note to end on before we um, move to wrapping up might be the latter point. Um, where, In your opinion, right, sort of looking back at this, reflecting on the conclusion and kind of where you are right now, what are some of the most important lessons, if any, for you um, from this story and from understanding the war crimes in the sense that you've allowed us to in terms of understanding where we are now and, and where we might go from here? I think where we are now is obviously we, we know a lot more, we know a lot more about the, the overall narrative of lower level war crimes, trials, and the pursuit of justice in East Asia, not just from the Chinese side, uh, Sino-Japanese side, as I've been looking at, but other people doing the French, the, the Dutch, uh, and other trials that we've all met in different groups, and we're learning uh, quite a lot. I think one of the issues to think about is what impact does this then have on post-war China, Chinese and Taiwanese society? Uh, I argue that, you know, this the legacy of the idea of these trials gets lost for quite a while because of the turbulence in Taiwan as a dictatorship in China after the anti-rightists and the the cultural revolution. Um, And that's not something that gets touched upon a lot in Chinese scholarship in the Chinese language. They prefer to kind of talk about the the good points rather than uh, the points of of loss. But what also strikes me is that it's still a fundamental question, two questions. Why are the Chinese so benevolent toward the Japanese. It's really is a perplexing moment. And, you know, some people have said the Chinese are benevolent people and that there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but, you know, if we look at war crimes trials, the last Japanese repatriates in 1964, the last KMT uh, prisoner of war held by the CCP doesn't repatriate until 1975. And the last 10 of them get rejected from Taiwan and actually have to stay in Hong Kong or they go to America. So it's a really... Interesting. This goes to you know back to that chapter three of this ethnicity: who's Chinese, who's not Chinese, or who can live here, who can't live here. That you know, if we look at Sino-Japanese history, we look at war crimes trials. It seems that the Chinese are more benevolent toward their former enemy on both sides, the CCP and the KMT, than they are with each other. And that says a lot about wartime and post-war Chinese history and their relation with Japan. I think than perhaps uh, we've thought about before. So that's something I've been digging into also, is how do the KMT treat the CCP prisoners and vice versa? And in many cases, it's a lot worse than the Japanese are treated. 
So, Brock, that we could easily talk for another two hours, right? I mean, there's a million, million. million Only because things. you are a stellar interview. <laughs> no, because it's just such a fascinating book. Um, so, I, you know, the idea here, ideally, is that listeners will um, move from this and have a chance to read the book itself, right? We can't be comprehensive in terms of reproducing the, the really wonderful stuff in the book. But even given that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about today, but that you'd like to kind of get out there for listeners and maybe especially for listeners who haven't yet become readers? Uh, I, you know, I made the book in a way that you can read, I believe, individual chapters that interest you, perhaps if you want to focus more on, let's say, a Taiwan aspect, a KMT, a CCP, or a Japan aspect. So the book is dividable in that sense. Um, otherwise, I think we touched on kind of a lot of the the issues uh, and, you know, they'll have to maybe wait a couple more years for volume two, which will be uh, the construction of justice in East Asia. Right. So I was, that's what I was going to ask you next is I'm given how like amazingly productive you are. I'm afraid to ask you this question, right? I'm afraid you're going to be publishing like five more books in the next two years. years. How are we going to talk about all of them? Um, But what's next for you? What's immediately um, inspiring you and what can we hope to see next? I have a, couple conference volumes coming out from this project um, that will be coming out. And then a post-war East Asian history book, looking at uh, kind of the end of empire to the present, but only in East Asia, uh, a short monograph, and then volume two, the, the construction of justice. So a lot on my plate. But I, but I would like to add before I forget that if listeners are interested in informing the Carla Nappi fan club, then, <laughs> then I think we should do that. <laughs> Because we all we all enjoy your interviews. You're like you're like the Terry Gross of the book of the book world now. You are too kind. Well, you know, any um, ability that I have to do these interviews is entirely dependent on the generosity of people like you who are spending hours of your time right, talking with us about it. So thank you, Barack. Thank you for making time to talk with me. Thank you for another fascinating book, and I'll look forward to talking with you about the next five or six that I'm sure you're going to be publishing in the next couple of years. Um, So good luck with all of your current work now, and thank you again. Thank you very much. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.